The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. In this episode, I got to speak to a musical hero of mine, Chris Difford. Chris is a founder member of the iconic British band Squeeze that he set up with Glenn Tilbrook and Jules Holland. Chris did the words, Glenn did the music, and the duo were hailed as the heirs to the Lennon and McCartney throne in the late 70s, a comparison which they were never very comfortable with. But that didn't stop them making some of the most enduring tracks of the era, including Call for Cats, Pulling Muscles from a Shell and Up the Junction. Chris struggled with alcoholism and drug abuse at the height of his career and his experience of rehab and recovery prompted him to get involved with the More Than My Past campaign launch last year. We talked music, football, addiction and recovery. But first, to set the scene, here's a clip from the video Chris appeared in for the More Than My Past campaign launch last year. First and foremost, I'm a songwriter and an author, I am a musician, but I'm a recovering alcoholic. I guess when I was 14, 15 at school, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be in a band. I wasn't very good on the guitar or piano or anything else, but I just could write lyrics for some reason, I don't know why, but that became my gift. And that's who I became, the guy that writes the words for Squeeze. The lowest ebb, I suppose, came in the middle of touring with Squeeze because I didn't really understand what was going on around me. I had lost touch with my feelings, if I had any. It wasn't doing my relationships any good. And uh, eventually, I, it, sort of, it just cracked. And luckily, it cracked with lots of good friends around me and they took me off to rehab and... Um, I've not looked back, it was a tremendous uh, turnaround. Well, more than my past is the present moment, I suppose, and the future. I mean, I don't know what either of them kind of hold. You can judge people on their past. You can only judge them on who they are now. They can have responsibilities for the past and be held to account for things that they may have done in the past. But it's really not about that. It's about what you do in the day and about how you get from one day to the next. Firstly, how how did you get involved with the More Than My Past campaign, Chris? Um, Well, I was asked, really, quite simply, whether um, I would be involved, and seemed like a no-brainer to me. I mean, it's good to share your experiences, your strengths and hope. And um, giving back is something that I, I believe in very, very deeply. So that's that's why. More than my past campaign is obviously people who have left uh, something behind them and are moving forward into, an, into uh, have moved forward into a new life. But with you, Chris, the majority of the problems was booze more than alcohol or was it a bit of both? You mean, was it drugs and alcohol? <laughs> Yes, it was. It was uh, all of the above, and um, I enjoyed every minute of it until it got too much pain. Too much pain arrived, and then I had to stop. I've always been interested because I'm a, I'm I'm an actor and have been for forty years and worked with uh, a lot of greats. And a lot of the great actors that I've worked with have had issues and problems with substances and alcohol. There's a sort of myth, isn't there, about 
whether the drinks and drugs are, are tied in with your talent. And how do you feel about that, Chris? Was, the, was that something that you felt was true or not true? Or, or what's your feelings about that? I remember being in treatment and somebody giving a lecture and saying that alcohol and drugs never helped anybody creatively. And then I just said, what about Jimi Hendrix? And kind of blew the guy out of the water because, you know, a lot of people were um, out of their heads for quite a considerable amount of times while they were recording classic records. I don't think I was one of those people particularly. It was a recreational drug and uh, a recreational drink. And although it it, it uh, took its toll on me, I don't think I was in the same neighborhood as people like Hendrix or yeah. Jim Morrison, people like that. So just leading on from that, you talked about some fantastic place, uh, which I love, obviously, and that was written by you as a sober songwriter. Mm. Do, do you do you remember, for instance, even that early stuff? Did you write anything that you write up there with that, you know, whilst you were drinking or whilst you were taking drugs? Or do you think it is like you just said, it's literally the talent works sober or drunk? I'm not going to tell people to give up drugs or alcohol and make them a better songwriter. Um, I think in some cases, depending on the individual, it may enhance their performance. But my watchword would be in moderation for people. But some people don't understand the word moderation and uh, I was definitely one of those people and so I couldn't find the time in my head to turn off the on button but um, some people can you know some people manage to have a couple of pints or whatever and then they go go and watch a telly and then sleep I couldn't do that. Also Chris just talking about that life and for me I've, I've been lucky as an actor and you know, travel the world and work all over the world. And it means maybe six months of the year I'm away from my family. And there's a thing I found with drinking or with, with uh, colleagues of mine who, who uh, are drinking that part of it is the separation from your reality and from your life and from the loneliness of being on the, on the road and the hotel rooms. I've read a lot of your blog and, you, you know, you're obviously a brilliant writer, and, but you not when you're writing songs but also when you're writing prose and you talk very beautifully in the blog about being away from home and about being away from the family and do you think that definitely contributes to artists or actors or uh, anyone who travels who's on the road getting into trouble with booze and drugs it's the distance and the loneliness um yeah i think the distance doesn't help uh you know people like yourself actors and musicians we have a very different lifestyle to most people who just come home of an evening after work and and have a normal kind of what one could call a normal kind of domestic life but it's not a disease that just strikes artistic people it strikes plumbers um bt guy you know and it can strike at anybody so it's not just for uh traveling people no i i, I realize that i was just I've just always been interested in that thing about it's really interesting because it's like once you're out of sight of the people who love you, mm. you're only responsible to yourself. And that always that's always been an interesting thing. It's like a childlike thing almost in me where, you know, you're you're only responsible to yourself. No one's going to find out, you know, so therefore it leaves you this liberty to behave in any way you want. And that's that's an interesting. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I, I think uh, um, alcoholics are very creative people. Um, even when they're on their own, they can be the most creative people. It's very demanding and uh, tricky. Every alcoholic that I try and 12-step or work with 
will always tell me the words, hold on a minute, I've just got something else to take care of. Uh, and then they slip through your hands like a bar of soap. But the good ones get caught. Looking through your Instagram and your and your blog, it's clear that you've got a great love for your family, you know, your mum and dad and uh, your childhood, your brother. How do you feel about the thought that uh, addiction is inherited? For me, for instance, my dad was always a drinker. My mum was always a drinker. So it was an option. It was always in front of me. But was that something which happened in your family? And what are your thoughts on that, on the idea that it's, it's an, an inherited thing or can be passed from father to son? Uh, there's been a lot of research around this, and I think it is inherited. Sometimes it skips a, gen a generation, but all of my ancestors have either been publicans or thieves, and um, it seems like it, that has kind of trickled down the family uh, tree. Um, my mum and dad, they liked to drink, but they were very they're very reserved about it. They'd only start drinking after seven o'clock at night. I don't know what that all that was about, but they were very guarded around what they what that what they did, maybe just to shield us. Um, but then, you know, by the end of the night, they were sloshed and they were off to bed. Maybe that's a recognition of the danger of it. It's just interesting to, it can't actually be in the blood, but it is, it does seem to be inherited. It does seem to be an option, you know, when you're, when your fathers and my grandfather, and my grandmother, all, all heavy drinkers that it, it's in a way, I suppose I feel that the devil's on my shoulder because my, because of the mistakes my father made, it's kept me yeah. to it under control possibly um you, you know i i can't look back and blame anybody but myself because i was responsible for my bad behavior and i have to say as i said at the beginning i enjoyed every moment of it until it stopped yeah. now just to take you to onto that was there a time like i've seen you know with actors you know where like for instance we did three seasons of this show i've just done and in the first season, the youngsters, I could see them having a great time and you speak very do you mind if i quote you chris do you mind if i read a quote from you yeah um, which I think is really interesting for me and for anyone else who lives the sort of that life of that nomadic life. And it says, in my room on the 21st floor, I see people heading out to bars. The band are already there. And this morning I could feel the pain of the hangovers and smell of the breathing of not much sleep. I'm off to bed now for some shut eye. Thank you for this day. I am peaceful. I am happy. I am free of all suffering. And I wish you the same, but with bells on. <laughs> yeah, so beautiful. And for me, that epitomises that idea of being on the road and realising where you are and seeing the youngsters yeah. going out and partying. And before they hit, as you said, some will learn to turn it off, but some won't. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the clever ones keep on drinking, I think. Uh, you know, and they have the experiences that they have. And, you know, I've had some incredible experiences uh, um, and a lot of the things about early squeeze, I don't remem remember because of my drinking, you know, but I'm pleased now that I've got 26 years under my belt of sobri sobriety and uh, a day at a time, it seems to be where I should have been in the first place. Mm -hmm. After thinking about that, about... 26 years of sobriety and playing Madison Square Gardens three times but once I think once sober right yeah how did that rate um, the nerves I mean the nerves of doing that realizing what you're doing as opposed to the nerves of doing it when you're half cut or cut um it was a very it was like playing Glastonbury it was a very emotional experience you can't quite take it all in 
because it's the songs come thick and fast. Uh, the moments are so quick. Uh, you know, there's there's hardly time to think. And uh, you know, I, I I've I've come to try and think a bit like an actor in a way that you go on stage and you've got a certain amount of time to be visual, and you've got to be all tits and teeth during that two hours on stage. Um, and own those moments for yourself and really enjoy it. This is what you've been born for, you know, and this is what you should be uh, inhaling and making the most of. Um, and when you're doing like 200 shows a year or whatever, you know, you've got to be able to do that every night, and that's quite tough. That must have been amazing. 2000, it was 2015, Glastonbury, I think. Yes, yeah, and that was a lovely thing. Um but then I'm I'm as happy, you know, I was saying the other day, I'm happy playing Madison Square Garden to 22,000 people, but I'm also happy to play to 100 people in a church. You know, it doesn't matter really. It's, a, it's especially for my generation, it's such a, you know, such an honour and pleasure to talk to you, Chris, because, um, you. you know, growing up, my big brother was a punk and I was like, he was phlegm and I was little phlegm and I worshipped him and he used to sneak me into gigs, you know, at 15, 14 and 15. And um, those albums, those early Squeeze albums were just so much part of, you know, I've been playing it to the kids. I've got two twin boys who are eight. Nice. I'm, I'm playing them. I've been playing the music on, you know, Alexa, play Squeeze. And it goes, yeah. we have selected songs by Squeeze. And we've been listening to it for two or three days. And to hear them starting to sing the lyrics, it's such, a, it's such an amazing thing to see yeah. um, an eight-year-old boy singing singing up the junction and it's just such a pleasure cool. to see thank oh, you for that and i guess in a way in a way what's amazing about music is mm. that it's forever you know it's forever it's not like live theater which if you weren't there you won't know about it you know those squeeze yeah. albums are there forever yeah i suppose you're right yeah you obviously wrote the line i never thought it would happen with me and the girl from clapham which for me being a clapham boy born and bred has always been the re the reason i started getting into squeeze was probably from that song what happened how did that line come about um, I was sitting in a laundrette and uh, I had nothing to do and I got a pen and a piece of paper, my notepad that I used to carry around and that was the first line that came out and the rest of it just followed suit. And was it autobiographical? Was there anything to do with the girl from Clapham? No, I knew, I'd never been to Clapham and I didn't know anything about it so it was all from my imagination. So to finish up, but you're a big Charlton Athletic fan. Well, I was when I was a kid. Um, you know, I used to go every Saturday and stand in the stands, um, and it was a wonderful event. I haven't been for many years, I have to admit. Since I moved out of London 26 years ago, I've kind of I've always been of the philosophy that you support the football team whose lights you can see. Yeah. And um unfortunately the only lights I can see around here are Lewis and they have a they have the ground called the, the frying pan. 
Uh-huh. And, uh, they are a bit like people that play in a frying pan. They're sort of jumping about all over the place. But it's 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 amusing to watch because um, the last time I went to, the, to watch Lewis play, they were playing Dartford or some, somebody like that, or Dagenham. And uh, the manager disagreed with a call that the um, the referee took. So he basically walked on the pitch and punched him. <laughs> now that's football. Old school football. Yeah, brilliant. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes. Greatbigowl.com All of television history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favourite television moment. And tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Woman's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of delights from Great Big Owl.